And I'm kind of hoping that you guys might be willing to follow me to a place that will be pretty uncomfortable, but ends in some place pretty awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of hoping that at some point in time during the service or in the course of your day, uh, that each of us would allow ourselves uh, in our heart to kind of sink into a place where we're willing to feel some of the weight of our sin and our shame, whether present or past. Um, and, and please don't be confused. What I don't mean is that we would camp out there. I don't think that Jesus wants us to live in a place where we're rolling around in our sin or our shame. And I absolutely don't mean that I think Jesus wants us to go back to something that he's already really set us free from. But I suspect that there's probably quite a few of us in the room who think that we've really dealt with our sin, but all we've actually done is managed our shame effectively. And Jesus doesn't want us to just manage our shame. He wants us to actually move past that. He wants us to end up in a place of transformation. And I think that in order to end up in a place of transformation, we have to experience that at his feet by his blood. And I think in order to do that, we have to be moved to repentance. And I think in order to be moved to repentance for many of us, it can be really helpful to feel some of the weight of our sin and our shame, to allow ourselves to be resensitized to that so that again, we would repent and let the Lord actually deal with the root of the shame, which is our sin because he is absolutely able to do that. And without Jesus, I don't think we have hope in this area, but with Jesus, we have hope to get through this on our knees by his blood. And so I'm not asking you to follow me into this difficult and painful place to find hopelessness. I'm asking you to follow me there so that, so that we can follow Jesus out of there for good. Um, a lot of you guys know, because I got to share this a few months ago, that last year my wife and I, we spent the year in Southeast Asia working with an anti-trafficking ministry. And when we had been there for a little while, I got asked if I could help teach English uh, for these two women who not too long ago had left their lives as prostitutes, uh, and they had subsequently come to Jesus, and now they were, uh, now they were engaged in this year-long discipleship program. And so me and this one other woman from our, uh, from our team, we, we would teach that class twice a week for a couple hours each class, and we would just kind of go over English stuff. And, and before too long, we decided, you know, why don't we kill two birds with one stone? Because these women, they're brand new in their faith. They've never really been exposed to very much of the Bible. Let's kill two birds with one stone, and we'll start reading through stories in the book of Genesis. Uh, what I was thinking of when we made that decision was like how the book of Genesis is all these cute, fun little children's stories that are so great for learning English, right? Like Noah and the fluffy animals and Joseph and his really cool coat and all that kind of stuff. But if you've ever read that book as an adult, um, I don't know why this just didn't click for me because I have read it many times as an adult, you realize really quickly, whoa, this is not fluffy animals and a cool, colorful coat. Uh, this book is full of scandal and sexual brokenness. Like, it's, it's rated TVMA if it was going to be on Netflix for sure. Uh, it's, it's not PG, I promise you. Um, and, and so we started reading these stories, and every time we would read one of these stories that, that had to do with the sexual brokenness and this, this depravity and this wickedness, I would start to feel super awkward, right? Because I'm the only guy in the room. Two of the women in the room not too long ago were prostitutes, and I am profoundly and acutely aware of the fact that my very presence might make them feel threatened. 
And now we're reading stories like, you know, Noah passed out naked and drunk. Abraham, he's got like tons of them, right? Multiple occasions, Abraham takes his wife and passes her on to another man and says, nah, she's, she's not my wife, go for it. Um, you know, and then some years down the road in his relationship with Sarah, his wife, they're having a hard time getting pregnant. And so Sarah comes up with this brilliant idea. She says, why don't you take my servant Hagar and why don't you sleep with her and she'll get pregnant and she'll have a kid and the kid will kind of be our kid a little bit. And then they do that. And then surprise, surprise, Sarah ends up really angry and frustrated and bitter and jealous of Hagar. And so she goes to her husband and she says, uh, why don't you take the servant, the slave woman and her son and dump them in the desert? And he does that. Right? Father Abraham had many sons and one of them he left in the desert. Uh, it's kind of messed up. And it continues from there, right? It doesn't stop. It goes on and on and on. We, we look at Lot and his daughters and Judah and his daughter-in-law and it just continues from there. And it's usually at the hands of, of, of the protagonists, of the main characters, of the heroes of the faith that this wickedness is being done. And I had these moments when we would read these stories that kind of felt like if you remember being a teenager and you watch like a raunchy comedy with your friends and you think it's so funny because you're all teenagers and gosh, it's so funny how gross that is. And then a few months later, you, 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 know, you go to Blockbuster if you're old enough or whatever, and you rent the DVD, and, 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 and then you bring it home, and, and what you don't think about is like how raunchy that comedy was. It was so funny, but now you're watching the movie, and mom or grandma are in the room, and Will Ferrell's not so funny anymore, is he? And I started to have these experiences where we're reading, the, we're reading these children's stories, uh, and they don't really feel like children's stories, uh, and I'm acutely aware of that. And then as we would read these, I started to get concerned that, that my friends who were so new in their faith that they might hear the stories of the depravity of the heroes of the faith and, it, and it, it might confuse them and they might think, do I really wanna follow a God whose holy book is full of these broken people? And so every time we would get to the end of one of those stories, I would start explaining it away. I'd say, before we move on to talking about grammar, let me just talk about this a little bit. Now, just because, you know, the main characters are doing this doesn't mean that God or the Bible wants us to emulate what they're doing. They're not the cartoons that we grew up watching where the, where the main character, the protagonist, ends up in a moral quandary and they wrestle with it a little bit, but ultimately they end up deciding to do the right thing. And if we emulate their behavior, then we're doing pretty good too. That's not how the Old Testament is written. It's very different from that. And so I would explain this away out of fear that my friends would see themselves in the shoes of the victims of the heroes of the faith. And one of these times, maybe the fourth or fifth time I had done this, I think we were talking about how Abraham had abandoned Hagar and her son in the desert place and at the tail end of like tons of wickedness. And I'm explaining it away and one of my friends, she stops me and she says, Alec, I don't think you understand what the story means to us. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, it's really good news for me that Abraham did this. And I said, what? And she says, yeah, because God still used him, right? I said, yeah. And she says, so he'll, he'll still use me, won't he? And I said, yeah, he will. He absolutely will. And that was the beginning for her of realizing how far Jesus was going to take her that Abraham was so messed up and God still used us. See, God still used him because for her, the shame of the things that she had done and the shame of the things that had been done to her in her heart, they were inextricably interwoven, 
right? You couldn't pull them apart. And it didn't really matter to her if Jesus was gonna pull those things apart and define them and put them in their own nice, neat, tidy little boxes before he took her sin along with her shame and cast it as far from her as the east is from the west. For her, all that mattered is that Jesus was gonna get her clean and that Jesus used horrible people like Abraham and that we look back and call them righteous and that God was gonna use a person who had done the things that she had done and that we could look back and certainly God could and call her righteous. A few weeks later, this same woman, she came to me and she said, I've been going on this treasure hunt through the Old Testament to find all the stories of the women who have been sexually broken and who have done some sexual breaking of their own. And it's a pretty good treasure hunt. And the moment she said that, I don't think I, I was able to see the Bible the same way and I don't think I ever will be after realizing all of a sudden that yeah, this thing is full of these stories. Right, the tip of the iceberg is pointing out the fact that there are at least two women in the line of King David and ultimately Jesus who played the prostitute. Right, that holy lineage that we trace painstakingly throughout the Bible. Right, there's, an even, there's an entire book that's all about a man pursuing a woman who is a prostitute and setting her free and then her coming and finding some freedom and then abandoning him and leaving and then him going back and chasing after her again. And God wants us to know that, that we are that woman. And I started to wonder, man, was this book written primarily for an audience of prostitutes? That's confusing for me because I know so many people who've never been prostitutes who have experienced so much freedom in these words, who have encountered the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit through the words of the Bible and they weren't prostitutes, so how could that be? And, and as I've chewed on this question for about a year now, where I'm starting to land is I think perhaps that the Bible was really not necessarily exclusively written for prostitutes, but the Bible was written for people who are willing to sit in the same seat that prostitutes do when they look at themselves. For people who are willing to look at themselves from the same perspective that a prostitute was when they compare themselves to everyone else in the room. See, for my friends, the gospel was so obvious and so powerful and so clear that they saw it in the story of Abraham abandoning a woman that he had abused. Because for them, the story of the gospel was, I am filthy, Jesus makes me clean, and then he sets me free, and then we move forward from there as he makes me holy. It was that simple and that powerful that they can see it in the most broken stories of the Bible. But for you and me, I think we lack this advantage of a prostitute when it comes to looking at the gospel. I think we lack perhaps what Jesus was pointing to a few verses before the ones we'll read today, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because for you and me, we get so stuck on step one. We start to complicate and convolute the gospel when we say, not I'm filthy, but we say, I'm okay. And right? I'm not the worst person in the room. I'm a, I'm a pretty decent human being. Yeah, there are people who are better than me, but I'm, I'm not the worst. And so we have to do all these weird aerobics and gymnastics and strange things as we contort ourselves to fit into the gospel. Why? Because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we are somewhere where we're not. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that God is grading holiness on a curve, and that's not how it works. And Jesus wants to make it clear to us 
No, actually, if you want the gospel to come alive, you're gonna have to realize that you don't live up here in this better space than everyone else, than anyone else. Jesus is saying, I want you to come down here because the people who are gonna get this message understand that they cannot look around the room and say, I'm any better than anyone else. My friends didn't need to hear this message. When Jesus clarifies to a group of people that they're probably guilty of adultery even if they don't think so. Why? Because there were mornings where my friends would wake up and they would eat breakfast with the money that they had made committing adultery the night before. You and I have these useless veils that enable us to pretend that we're not guilty and full of sin and shame without Jesus. And so Jesus, he wants to make that point clear. And so in Matthew chapter five, he says this, He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he'll go on to talk about how, man, if your eye is causing you to sin, cut it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, chop it off. It's better that you would do that than that you would be cast into hell. There's something more serious that you don't understand about the depths and the weight of your sin and of your shame. And you may be able to tell yourself, I have never cheated on my spouse, therefore I'm not an adult. And Jesus is saying, now you missed it. If there's lust in your heart, it's that serious. Righteousness is not not graded on a curve. It's pass fail. And chances are most of us, if not all of us in the room, have failed. Why does Jesus want me to feel so bad? I think because he wants us to understand the good news. And for me, the the place in my life that I can look back to and can say, yeah, that was a complete and total failure. That's That's the place in my life where I began to be able to sit down next to my friends that I didn't know yet, that I wouldn't know for years to come, where I could sit down with them and say, I am absolutely the same as you. It's good news to me that Abraham would do those things. It, that, that time of life for me was when I was nine years old and I started looking at pornography and I entered into a season of four or five years of my life where my heart and my mind were completely wrapped up and intertwined with lust and brokenness. Or I couldn't even look at my friends without being ashamed of the things that were happening in my mind and in my heart. And in that season of life, I began to become really acquainted with some of the different strategies that we can employ to manage our shame. And I want to walk you through three of those today, and then there's a fourth one that's very different from the first three. The first of those strategies that I started to encounter was was what I would consider maybe the most base of those strategies, the most primitive of them. It's what I would call self-pity, or a better way to put it maybe is just wallowing in your shame. Right, and that's the most base because it's just what you do, right? You feel shame and what are you gonna do? You're gonna feel the shame. So you roll around in it and you stick with it and you carry it with, you, with it in the back of your mind, in the back of your heart and you don't know what to do with it and you try to figure out what can I do with this shame and then all of a sudden you slip back into the same sin that precipitated the shame in the first place and you find a little bit of relief from the shame. It changes your mood. It makes you feel better for just a little bit. And for me, in that season of life, it was pornography, but, but you know, I think that's probably a good example because it's really good at conjuring up shame for us, but there's probably, you could plug in any different sin that you want to, right? And so you go back to the sin and you find some relief from your shame, and it feels good for a little bit, for a few seconds, a few moments, or at best until the next morning, but then the shame, it snaps back stronger than it ever was before. 
And so you carry it again until the next private moment when you fall into the sin again and find some momentary relief. But every time you do this, the relief you get is not as strong and the shame becomes stronger. And those of us who use this as our primary strategy of shame management, uh, two things, or really the same thing happens by two different avenues. We continue to walk deeper and deeper and deeper into more and more and darker and darker sins because lust will fill any space that you give it. And once it's filled that space, it will begin to fill the next spaces. And we find ourselves needing to do more sin, more frequent, frequent and more dark sin just to find the same amount of relief that we got in the very beginning like any other addiction. And at the same time that that's happening, we're starting to actually grow an addiction not just to the sin but to the shame itself. We start to like that feeling. We start to love that we hate what we do. We start to love that we hate ourselves. And eventually people who stick with this long enough, they'll need to hop into a whole different kind of sin that's probably more public because they need the thoughts and words and condemnations of other people to magnify their own shame because they love to hate themselves, because we love to hate ourselves when we're wrapped up in this self-pity strategy of shame management. For me, this wasn't good enough. I, I, I didn't like the feeling. I didn't want to revel in my shame very long. So I, before too long, I had to move on to another strategy. I had to move on to what I'm gonna call self-justification convincing myself that what I was doing wasn't wrong. And I think for most of us, this strategy, it begins with the very same question that greased the wheels for sin to enter the world in the first place. Did God really say? Did he really say that that was wrong? And I, and I would start to ask myself, and I'd say, could this really be, be wrong? I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem to be hurting anyone. It doesn't seem to be unhealthy because I, I, and everything seems to be fine. It, you know, what could be wrong with this? And for those of us who stick in this strategy, we start to convince ourselves that, and eventually, maybe it's not good enough. Maybe, maybe we need to move past, did God really say? And we start saying, does God really even have the authority to say, right? Does God even have any moral authority or claim over my life? Or does God even exist at all? And we, if we're honest with ourselves, we're doing this. Why? Because we're managing our shame. We're tired of feeling ashamed and feeling like someone gets to tell us that what we're doing is wrong. And so we start to convince ourselves that, that it's not. And this is very dangerous because this is perhaps the most effective of these strategies of shame management. Because with this strategy, you can turn down the, the volume on your shame, and I think you can even effectively mute it. And once you figure out you can mute it with one sin and, and the following shame, you realize you can do that to any sin and the shame that comes. And then at some point in time in the process, You'll start to buttress up your opinions and your beliefs that no, this isn't wrong by gathering other people around you that you can convince no, that's not wrong and that can help you convince yourself that no, this isn't wrong. And eventually you have a little community, a little bubble of men and women who are just yes men and yes women. And eventually that can grow into a philosophy, into a theology, into an ideology, even into a religion of people who are simply saying you do you, do whatever makes you happy as long as it feels good. And I would ask you to pause just for a second right there because I think there are some people here who are like me who are already hearing this and starting to take it and use it to do strategy number three, self-righteousness. I think we're hearing this and thinking, yeah, that's what that person does. I don't do that. Yeah, that's what that group of people, that's where that ideology, that's where that thought process came from and I don't do that. And I don't think that that's the most fruitful use of this, of this classification. 
I think the most fruitful use of, of this information is for us to look and to say, am I doing this? Have I been convincing myself that no, this isn't wrong because it helps me dampen the volume on my shame? And again, for me, this strategy didn't work for too long because I, I couldn't convince myself that God was saying that what I was falling into was okay. It was clear to me in verses like the ones that we just read that God was saying, no, this is wrong. And then I wasn't willing to like abandon Jesus, to walk away from him, to throw out his word in my, in my, um, in my journey to mute my shame. And so I had to move on to a new strategy that I would call self-righteousness. And really, self-righteousness, I think, is just a sub-strategy under hiding. And there are so many different ways to hide, but some of us, we just, we literally will go into this little corner and we'll hide in that corner where no one can see me, where no one can find me. I stopped going to church because I feel so bad of what I'm doing and I don't want to talk to anybody and I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing. Some people stop having friends. They stop engaging. Some people just really stay very quiet so that no one can see their shame. And I couldn't do that for very long because I'm way too extroverted for that. And so I needed to find another strategy, another way of getting out into the open where I could hide. And I realized that I had these very convenient personality traits that were true of me that I could hide behind in front of everybody else. See, I was someone who really usually does follow the rules. I was someone who really did have a relationship with Jesus. I was someone who really was plugging into church and into youth group. And I could hide behind those things and a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of transparency, and no one would ever know, no one would ever suspect, no one would ever ask me if there's anything below the surface. See, growing up, I was a really bad liar. And so I learned that if I was gonna get away with anything with my parents, I had to hide any suspicion from them. Because the moment that they asked me a question, I was either gonna accidentally just straight up tell them the truth before I decided, before I had the opportunity to decide to lie, or I was gonna like muster up the courage to lie and they were gonna see right through it immediately. And so the result of that of me reveling in really what was my favorite, what probably still is my favorite strategy of shame management, is that I hid my shame and my sin so much that even though it started at nine years old, I was 14 years old and almost on the other side of it, before either of my parents who are good parents, who care about these things, who talked about these things with me, before either of them ever asked me directly, have you ever looked at pornography? And the answer that I was able to honestly give my mom at that point in time when she asked that question was, yes, I have, uh, but I'm not really doing it anymore. I hid it so well. I even hid it when I was finding freedom from it. And this is the strategy that is so deadly because it grows and it festers when we keep it in the darkness, right? This is the strategy that leads to headlines Pastor, clergyman, politician, celebrity, secret affairs, secret substance abuse, money laundering. Insert the blank, right? And as I've been prepping for this message, I've been thinking, I doubt that those men and women start off saying, my life is gonna be a scam. That's, my, that's where I'm going. I think they start off as kids who have something that they really wanna hide and they just never figure out how to bring it out. And in that process, you begin to kind of split into two different people. There's this public person, this, this person that everyone else sees that is righteous, that is better, that is successful, that is honest. And then there's this other person that carries all the shame in private. 
And this person grows and grows and grows the more this person looks better and better and better. And at some point in time, I just couldn't deal with the fact that I felt so two-faced, that I felt like there were two human beings growing inside of me, and one of them was so disgusting, and the other one just felt like such a lie, even though there was some truth to him. And so I started going to my youth pastors, to David Stockton, to Mike Pfeiffer, and I said, this is what's happening in secret. And they gave me a lot of really good practical advice and we could give a whole message on practical advice, trying to get over this, trying to conquer it, trying to access the freedom that Jesus is offering you. But the best advice that they both gave me was repent. Go from this place of feeling the weight of your sin and shame to Jesus and lay it down at his feet and acknowledge how wrong this is and repent and let him restore you and make you clean Begin the years-long process of allowing him to renew your mind, to transform you by the renewal of your mind rather than being conformed to the patterns of the world. And that's what I did, and that's where I landed, that Jesus really transformed me to the place where I felt comfortable in my own mind and heart. Where Jesus didn't just manage my shame. The moment I stopped managing my shame, I let him manage my sin and cast it away from me and slowly heal and renew me to the point where none of that baggage that I was so terrified was gonna follow me the rest of my life, none of that baggage really followed me into my marriage. One of my primary love languages is words of affirmation and my wife uh, knows this about me and her primary love language is gifts. And this last Valentine's Day, uh, you know, we were kind of between jobs and spaces and really between life um, and we didn't know what to do, and she wanted to give me a good gift, so she sat down to make a gift, and she ended up making the best gift she's ever given me. She, she sat down for an hour or two and wrote down like 101 or even more uh, really kind things to me on little pieces of paper that she hole-punched and tied together with a ribbon and gave to me. It looked like something your kids might take home from Sunday school today. Um, and she thought I was gonna open it up and tear through it and read every single word that she wrote, but instead I decided I was gonna savor it and just flip it every so often to the next page and read it. And last week when I was starting to get ready uh, to prep for this message, I, I flipped the page on my nightstand and I saw a page that said, I trust you fully. There's no one in this world who knows my heart better than my wife outside of the Lord. And this is words written from a woman who's had her own struggle with insecurities. This is word, words written to a husband who at nine years old couldn't walk in public without feeling the shame of his brokenness and the weight of adultery in my own heart. And this is on the tail end of a year, spending time in brothels and in red light districts and befriending prostitutes when all the work that the Lord had done was really put to the test. And she looks at me and she says, I trust you fully, and she writes it down. Because the hope that Jesus has for you this morning, as you stop managing your shame and you let him manage your sin, it's not just hope. I mean, hope is a beautiful and a great thing, but it's not just hope, it's tangible, right? It's a real thing that you actually have access to, right? I don't just hope that I'm gonna have a bowl of ice cream tonight. I know that there's ice cream in my freezer and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna eat the ice cream. And I expect it and I'm excited for it and I have evidence of it. <laughs> and in the same way, we don't just hope for what the Lord can do with us. 
Expect it. Know that it's there sitting in the fridge waiting for you. Jesus can take you and heal you. It comes through repentance. David's gonna come on up and he's gonna wrap us up as we just do some business with the Lord along these lines.